Good morning, everyone. Oh, what a great response. We thought it was going to be quiet today, but no. Um, it's so nice to see you this morning. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Amy, and I'm part of the staff team here. Um, with a particular focus on our young adults um, and our students and our discipleship here. Um, so if you're interested in any of those things, come say hi. Um, and if you are keeping up with our year of biblical literacy, you will be aware that we haven't quite reached Daniel yet. That's tomorrow, so it's okay, do not fret. Um, but hopefully, most of us probably know some of the stories about Daniel. Um, Daniel in the lion's den, when his friends get thrown into the, the burning furnace alive and they come out and they don't even like smell of smoke, incredible. Um, it's a great book. And I spent a lot of time in Daniel when I first moved to Winchester. I had just finished university and I moved here and I didn't know anyone. And Daniel was where I felt called to spend my time and it really helped me as I adjusted to being here um, and to settling in. So I have a special place in my heart for Daniel. And Daniel is a book um, of 12 chapters. It splits perfectly in, in half. So the first six chapters is all about Daniel and his friends. It's very story-based. We get to see what they're up to. And then the last half of the book is like prophetic literature and visions and dreams. Um, so it's quite different in some ways. So it's got a bit of everything. Daniel's got the easy to read bits, the what's gonna happen next bits, and the what on earth are they talking about bits at the end as well. And um, one of the reasons that I love Daniel um, is that he's a great example of remaining faithful to God in a new place, in the face of persecution, under pressure, when there's uncertainty. Um, and it's not even always in the most obvious ways to begin with. And that is exactly what we'll be exploring today as we start our new series, Live Different. So, before we kick off, so that you know where we're going today, I have a little bit of a roadmap. There we go. In screenwriting, they usually break it into three parts. We have the setup, so that's going to be what happens to Daniel. And then we move into the conflict, what does Daniel do? And then we have our resolution, what happens as a result of that. And then um, I've added in our big question at the end, which is what does that mean for us? So just so you know where we're going, um, that's basically it. So without further ado, let's read Daniel chapter one. Um, please feel free to read along in Bibles or on your phones. Um, that'd be great. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, 
to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So, we start chapter one with King Nebuchadnezzar. His army surrounds Jerusalem. They ransack it and they capture them. And this takes place in the third year of the king of Judah, King Jehoiakim, um, who wasn't a very good king. Um, but there's a few things that are happening at this point as we start. At the very start, we read that the Lord delivered Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Why would he do this? Well, if we think back to some of the things we've been learning on our year of biblical literacy, God called Israel, the Jews, to be his covenant people. And he told Abraham he would make them a people who would be a light to the nations and that he would bless the world through them. But he also said that they had to be in a covenant partnership with him living lives that were separate from the world around them. But generation after generation of people rebelled and they refused and they turned to idolatry and the worship of other gods. And for hundreds of years as they did this, God warned them, if you don't stop this, I will judge you. If you don't stop, I will bring you into exile. And finally, God says no more. And this is at the start of Daniel. He removes his hand of protection from them and delivers them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And I didn't want to skip over this um, because that could seem like a really confusing thing for God to do. Um, but actually, this is an act of God's faithfulness, of God staying true to his word. He had warned the, the Israelites many times that this would happen if they didn't change their ways. Um, and so he had reached that point. Um, so just to touch base on that. It was actually an act of God's faithfulness um, and shows that he sticks to his word and he does what he says. So we've reached exile. This is where it all starts and this is the context for the rest of the book of Daniel. Um, we are told that Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus which was about 60 to 70 years. So he's there for a long time. And Babylon, um, it's, it's a city. It's the biggest known city um, 
at the world, known world at that time. Um, but it's more than that. It is an archetype that is used throughout the entire Bible. From Genesis 11, we hear about the Tower of Babel, which is the origin story of Babylon. And then when we get to Revelation, it's still there. We're still talking about Babylon at the end. And it actually represents a society that is apart from God, that is an open rebellion to him. Um, so when we talk about Babylon, um, it's more than just what happened at this time. But actually, we can see it as an image um, of all societies that are apart from God and in rebellion to God. Next, they take some of the articles from the temple of God and they put them in the treasure house of the Babylonian gods. And at its most basic level, this is King Nebuchadnezzar saying, my God's bigger than your God, my God can beat your God up. Um, and that's kind of what that is. And then lastly, they take the Israelites from the royal family and nobility and they train them up to be in the king's service. And they take the best of the best for themselves and then they basically put them through a three-year cultural immersion program to make them Babylonian. And they do this um, with a four-part strategy to influence them and change them. So the first one is isolation. They isolate the, the young men from their families, from their homes, even from their places of worship. Um, and the guys are like age 13 to 15, they're still pretty young, which means they're probably more impressionable, easier to, to seduce and lead astray. And what they're doing is really quite clever, um, and they're using what is often an underestimated power in our society. And it's this thing that we have called social glue. And when we become unglued from our communities, we are more likely to do stupid things that we wouldn't normally do, or to try things that we wouldn't normally try, or to kind of walk away from some of the things that we've been used to. Um, and this is actually one of the things that we see happen a lot in our universities, um, as students come away from their church communities and their families for the first time, and they just kind of go a bit wild sometimes. Not all of them, but some of them. Um, and so they're isolated from their community. The next thing that happens is this thing called enculturation, which is a bit of a fancy word for the first Sunday of the summer. Um, but basically, Daniel and his friends are educated in the language and the literature of the Babylonians. So basic social engineering, really, teach them all about this new culture that they're in, all about how the society works, expose them to the best things that they can offer, wine and food from the king's table, and there was probably a lot of female companionship around as well at this time, because that was part of their custom. And they basically appeal to all of the young boys' appetites and ambitions. They're basically refugees at this point, so chances are they didn't have a great time, um, maybe they didn't have much food, and then to put right in front of them all this great food, like come and eat, really, you know, entice them in. But also these guys were some of the best, they were well informed, showing aptitude for all kinds of learning, quick to understand, so basically they're really, really smart. Um, and the Babylonians also then appealed to their mind, so that, that like ability to learn and to be good at things and to take in information by giving them a really great education. And it's really subtle what they're doing. And it could have sounded something a little bit like this. Oh, well, you're not at home anymore. This is just how we do things around here. Everyone's doing it. Look, go on. You know you want to. Does any of that type of stuff sound familiar? Have you ever had someone say that to you? Or have you ever said it to someone else? just putting on enough pressure to poke at the insecurities that people feel when they feel like the odd one out, but you don't do it enough to seem obvious in it. 
they then went through a process of integration. Oh, sorry, that color's horrendous. Anyway. Um, integration. They were fully integrated as members of the Babylonian society, living and training to serve the king. And you know, the more you feel a part of something, the more likely you are to go along with the crowd. So basically what they're doing is putting the new social glue around them and sticking them into that new community. And lastly, um, their identification. In verse 6, we read about how each of the names are changed. The Hebrew names are replaced with Babylonian names. And in the ancient world, names are more than just the label. They're your identity, they're your destiny. There's usually something prophetic in it that's being spoken over you. And the meaning was incredibly significant. We often read in the Bible about God coming and changing people's names when um, there's a change or he has something new for them or they've undergone some type of transformation. And so Daniel, which means Yahweh is my judge, becomes Belteshazzar, meaning treasurer of Baal, who is a Babylonian god. Hananiah, Yahweh shows grace, becomes Shadrach under the command of Aku, another Babylonian god. Michel, who is like Yahweh, becomes Meshach, who is like Aku. Azariah, Yahweh is my helper, becomes Abednego, servant of Nu. In this case, changing their names was a really oppressive move because they're replacing their God-given Hebrew identities with the pagan Babylonian one, basically mocking them. But um, there's a really fun little fact about Daniel. Um, one in this chapter will notice that they are always referred to by their original Hebrew names, um, which is great because Belteshazzar is really hard to say and I really have to think about it. But in the original text, um, the writer of Daniel actually spells the Babylonian names wrong every single time he writes it down. And they weren't sure if this was an accident or not. And then they realized that he was actually doing it on purpose because not only was it spelt wrong every time, it was spelt wrong differently every time. So it wasn't that he just got one letter wrong. Um, and I just think this is hilarious because Daniel, when he was writing it, is basically like, those names mean nothing. That's not who we are. Let's not even give them the significance of spelling them right. Um, and I just thought that was really cool. <laughs> so this is what's happened to them so far. And then we get to our conflict, the, bit, the big bit in the middle, you know, what happens? What does Daniel do? And so they're in this cultural immersion program, and it seems that the odds are against them, and they probably don't stand a chance but we reach a pivotal moment that sends us in a different direction. And it's in verse eight. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Daniel asks the chief official to test them for 10 days. They eat nothing but vegetables and drink water compared to the other young men who've been eating the food from the royal table. And then at the end, they're gonna compare and contrast what happens. And this teenage boy in exile finds the courage to stand up to the Babylonian culture and say, no, I don't want to eat that food or drink that wine. I'm not going to compromise on this. This goes against my faith. And it might not seem like a big deal, like, come on, Daniel, it's only some food, just eat it, because I probably would. Um, but Daniel knew his Bible, and for him at the time, that was the Torah, so the first five books of the Old Testament. And he knew the laws, particularly those around food, um, and one of those was around like eating kosher meat, so it was like prepared in a certain way and stuff. And the meat from the king's table was most certainly not going to be kosher. And even in exile, under pressure, Daniel followed and kept to the practices and the laws of his faith. 
And he didn't stop there because he could have just said no to the meat and still had some of the rest of the food and the wine from the table. But instead, he chose to go over and above that. And some people have said that Daniel was really legalistic. Um, he was a fundamentalist. He took things, you know, he was being too strict. But actually, what he did um, enabled him to make it through that time of exile. Um, and not only to make it through it, but to thrive in it. And he had a huge impact on the kings in Babylon during that time that lasted far beyond him himself. So he went above and beyond in his pursuit of holiness, even in the pressure of exile. And this brings us to one of our key themes of the story, which is the temptation to compromise, to just give in. In exile, during any time of transition in our lives, really, the temptation to compromise is at the top of the list of things that we could probably expect to face. And being tempted in itself isn't wrong because we can't control all of the situations that we find ourselves in. But there's a difference between that and um, putting ourselves into positions where we know that temptation will be an issue um, almost like being like, oh, how close can I get to it? Um, like, if you know there's delicious brownies in the fridge, probably made by Lisa McNeil, and you know that you shouldn't eat them yet because they're for the church picnic, but you really, really, really want to, hanging out in the kitchen all day is probably not the best place to be. Like, sometimes there's something that just takes common sense. But actually, in our Western culture today, as Christians, we face so many temptations um, in just the day-to-day -day things and probably more than believers do in other, other societies, I think, um, because we're in this time of exile. We're living in a pre-Christian culture where we are seen as the minority um, and not the mainstream. Um, and actually, that's something that is worth thinking about because it's not like our society has went back to what it was like before Christianity was, you know, the main religion or the, the mainstream thing. You know, society was then built around church and going to church and, like, shops didn't open and it was a real pivotal part of what happened in our society. We haven't went back to what it was like before then. It's different than that. And actually, as a... As a Christian, if we were to go into a pre-Christian, I think I said pre-Christian when I might say post-Christian, so sorry. If we go into a pre-Christian culture where there's never been a Christian before, the danger is that we would go in and colonize it. And so you could make it look exactly like what you want to and you can bring the faith in and you can bring Jesus in and make it look exactly like you do. Um, so sing the songs that you sing and you can make them, you know, teach them to read the Bible the way that you think you're supposed to do it and dress the way that you're supposed to do it um, and not actually help them learn and work out how to live out their faith in their culture and society. Um, that's not the case in a post-Christian society, which is where we are now, because in a post-Christian society, it's all about what's mainstream, and it's progressive, and everything's always changing, and we're moving forward, and you need to move, and you need to change with it, otherwise you're gonna become irrelevant, and old-fashioned, and intolerant. And it's almost like we're living in a secular version of, but in Christian societal structures. We have the kingdom, but we no longer have the king. It's like Christianity without Christ. And as missionaries sent out into this setting, the danger isn't that we will come in and make every single thing look like us. It's that we will be colonized by the culture to look more and more like it. And this can happen to us in two different ways. There are two powers or influences at work. Um, one is called hard power, and that's like really obvious stuff like the police and terrorist groups and you know people with a lot of authority. Um, and then we have soft power. And soft power is unassuming and it's subtle. 
and it can be slow, but it's really lethal. And it looks like one small compromise at a time. Just one more drink, just one more episode, just one more kiss. And slowly, compromise after compromise, we can become numb and apathetic. And before we even realize what's happening, we could have stopped living a life that follows Jesus altogether. And that's what soft power can look like. It's small, incremental decisions that have a massive effect on our long-term life. And it comes in all shapes and forms. We usually don't realize the effect that accumulation of small sins can have over time. It's just a little white lie, it doesn't matter, or nobody knows, so it's okay. It's really not, because before we know it, what started out as an innocent friendship is now an affair. What was a few drinks with friends every now and again is now a severe alcohol dependency. And what used to be a five-minute break to check our phones and social media is now an addiction that dictates our lives. And the thought of going somewhere that might not have signal or free Wi-Fi is my idea of a nightmare. And how could we even cope? Why would you do such a thing? And actually, something that was made for our convenience because something that dictates our lives. And there might be something that you're already thinking of. There might be a feeling that's starting to come up in your heart of like, oh, maybe this is an area of compromise in my life. It could be unhealthy relationships with food or alcohol, money, relationships, social media, binging Netflix. Maybe it's not that you binge too much. Maybe it's what you're watching in the first place that's an issue. And it can be something that five years ago you would have never watched and somehow over time you've become desensitized to it and now it's totally fine and you don't even notice all of these really inappropriate things that are happening. Um, and you know there's a lot of questions about what Christians should and shouldn't do and what they should or shouldn't watch. And I actually typed into Google yesterday, um, should Christians watch? And then I thought let's see what the top five autofill are. Um, and the first one which actually, before I even type, finished typing the word, should Christians, already said, should Christians watch Game of Thrones? Um, and then after that, we had Harry Potter, Lucifer, which I think is a TV show, horror movies, and Stranger Things. There's so much to be around what's appropriate, what's allowed, what's not allowed. Should we eat this? Should we watch that? Should we do that? Whatever it is, I'm not here to tell you what to do and what not to do. I'm here to encourage us to just think a bit more intentionally about what we choose to do and to watch and to eat instead. And often we have compromised before we've even realized it's happened. One day we might just look back and realize that we're doing things that don't align with our values anymore. But Daniel didn't get to that point. He was intentional from the start and he was aware of the areas that he didn't want to let influence or distract him from his faith where he didn't want to compromise. And our key verse for Daniel, our pivotal moment in chapter one is verse eight, but Daniel resolved. And resolved means firmly determined to do something. So Daniel was firmly determined to not eat or drink the royal food. He was firmly determined to keep the Jewish laws. He made an active and intentional decision and he drew a line that said, that's too far, I'm not gonna go there. And it prevented him from undergoing this total immersion, this total assimilation into the Babylonian culture. It was something that he could keep hold on to keep him true to himself and to God and his faith. And just to throw it out there, have you ever firmly determined to do something or to not do something? Maybe use this morning as a check-in point to see how that's going. So, what happens as a result of what Daniel does? Oh, sorry. There we go. 
They looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food, so good that the guard took away the choice food and wine from the rest of the young men and put them all on the same diet of water and vegetables. And God blessed them for their faithfulness to him and the Torah. Not only did he sustain them during that time, but he also gave them knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And he gave Daniel the gift of understanding visions and dreams, which as you read more into Daniel, you will find out comes in very handy. And Daniel and his friends, they embodied excellence. Right from the start, they had potential. But after the three years, the king found none equal to them. And I really want to emphasize here as a side note that it wasn't all about what they did um, and what they were good at that got them here. It wasn't because they were the best looking or they were like really smart and knowledgeable. That all helped them. But first and foremost, God caused the official to show favor and compassion on them, which then enabled them to carry on um, those next three years. And secondly, it was because of their character and their faithfulness to God in the midst of exile and that pressure to conform that God sustained them and raised them up above the rest and eventually into positions of great influence. Daniel stepped out in faith and said no to the royal food and then God stepped in and carried them through the rest of it, giving them energy and nourishment and good health. And as a result, everyone's diet was changed to match theirs. It wasn't just 10 days, it carried on after that as well. Daniel drew a line in quite a significant way. He put himself in a position where he had to be dependent on God showing up. Because I don't know about you, but when I don't get much food, I feel hungry and I'm tired. And then I start to feel really weak and pathetic. And then I can't focus and I can't concentrate. Like yesterday, I was doing some work on this talk and I had pancakes for breakfast. And like not even two hours later, I was like, I'm hungry. I need some more food. I can't do this. Um, So I totally get that Daniel had to trust in God if he was just living off like water and vegetables. Um, Like good on him. He chose to draw the line in a way that meant he had to put his trust in God. He couldn't do it on his own. And he basically says in this moment, God, I'm turning to you. I'm trusting you with my physical health, with my strength. I'm trusting you with my mind as I learn. I'm trusting you. I can't do this without you. So we've seen Daniel and his friends. They go into exile, taken from their homes, put through this immersion program, learn all about the culture, literature, history. They get given new names, access to all this great food, but they resolve not to eat it. It doesn't align with their faith. And then they find themselves coming out above the rest of them, healthier and better nourished. And at the end, the king can find no one like them. They're better, 10 times better than the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. And they're honored for this. What a great ending to the first chapter. But What does this mean for us? Why does it matter? What can we take away today? And in the message version of the Bible, in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse one, it says this. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of maturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-informed maturity in you. And other versions say things like, do not conform to the behaviors and customs of this world and not to conform to the patterns of this world. 
You see, God has called us to live differently from our culture and from the world. And throughout the Bible, we're encouraged to give our whole lives to God, to live with an all-in attitude. And it's not just at church on Sundays or at life group during the week. It's in the everyday little things, in the small decisions and actions, as well as the big ones. And to give it all to God, we have to fix our attention on him and let him be the one that leads us and transforms us. And as we're being transformed to be more like Jesus, he uses us to bring hope and transformation to our friends and our schools, our workplaces, our friendships, our marriages. And in Matthew, I think I have it right. Yep. In Matthew 5, it says this. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It matters what we do because we're called as followers of Jesus to stand out, not conform to our culture, but to be salt and light instead. And that means as salt, we preserve the good, but we also get rid of the bad. And we shine like lights in dark places so that those who are hopeless and confused and lost can find hope and truth and a home in their heavenly father. And in our first meeting with Daniel, he has shown us just a little bit of what it looks like to not let ourselves be conformed, to not give in to culture. And that remaining faithful in the small things is just as important as the big things. And um, I have a bit of an illustration for us this morning, which should be fun, to help us think a bit about why it's important, what we do, how we live, the decisions that we make, um, and also how this affects our attempts to live authentic lives um, for Jesus. So I'm hoping you can all see it. Um, it's a bit of a deep tray because there's water involved and I didn't want to get it everywhere. So hopefully you'll be able to see it just enough um, that it works. So this is us. We can start as empty vessels. Um, and then we get filled over time in life. Things come and fill us up. So, you know, maybe it's how we use our social media and our attitude to work and jealousy or our relationships with our family, um, you know, the way that we spend our money, all sorts of different things fill us up and the way that we live, we just get filled with all these lovely, colorful balls. So hopefully you can see it a bit better. And then what happens when we meet Jesus and we start spending time with God and we come into his presence is that God starts to fill us up. And when God comes in and starts to fill us up, something's gonna have to give. And so, if I've put these in right, stuff will start to get chucked out because we don't need it anymore. And oh no, there we go, run away. Um, that's fine. And I'm running out of water, go, there we go. So maybe you became a Christian and you noticed that you're not as angry anymore or you don't drink as much or maybe you've stopped swearing. Um, and there's some obvious things that when we become Christians start to change in our lives. Um, and it's great and you will know personally from your experience what those things are. But a lot of us get to this point 
where we've got God in our life and we've got a pretty good relationship going with him. Like we go to church and we're in a life group and we're on a team, so we're doing pretty well. Like we look like a pretty good Christian right now. And, um, you know, we spend time with him. But we've also got these things in our lives that maybe shouldn't be there so much or they're hindering us or keeping us back. And we can get complacent when we get to this point. We can get comfortable and be like, well, we've got a lot of God. So, like, I've come a really long way already. Like, look at all this junk I've already got rid of in my life. Um, Surely this is fine. Like, I, I can have a break. doesn't really matter. But actually... Like, I don't know if you can see well because of this, but what's easier to see? The nice, bright, colorful balls at the top or the water underneath? I'm hoping you're going to say that it's the balls because it doesn't work if you don't. Um, (laughs) And so when, when people look at us, it's a lot easier to see these things at the top. You know, like, isn't God really great? I'm so thankful that God has forgiven me. He's done so much for me. And then our friends look at us and we're like, how dare Karen say that to me in the workplace? I can't believe she said that. It's ridiculous. I'm not going to talk to her anymore. Like, do you know what? I'm inviting Jess out for drinks instead of her. Or it's like, well, no one, it doesn't matter if I watch this TV show because like I can handle the content. That, that's fine. It's only the soft Christians, the, the, you know, the really sensitive ones that can't watch these types of shows. So it's fine for me. It doesn't affect me. Or, you know, maybe it's something like you've got a holiday coming up next year. You really want to go and it'd be really great to have loads of spending money. Um, you're like, but I really trust God to provide for me. But maybe if I just stop giving to church for a little while, I can save up for my holiday. And it can just be little things that, that stick around um, and that people see. And it's easier to see these things than necessarily seeing what's going on in our heart or our values. And um, it's really important because when people look at us, if our lives look just like theirs, and if we just do the same things that they do, and we're always really jealous or angry or really judgy of other people, and maybe we just love to gossip and put people down, or you know, people know that we say we'll only have two drinks, but they know how easy it is to get you past that. It's not that hard. They're gonna look and think, well, this faith that they have, It's not that important, is it? Like, what's the big deal? It looks just like me, but they usually just feel guilty after they've done something they enjoy. Like, why do I need this Jesus guy? Why do I need to be saved? What can he offer me that I don't already have? Because, like, nothing changes. You just, sometimes my mate from church just feels guilty when she comes out with us, and I don't want to feel guilty when I do things. I just want to enjoy it. And so, as the, the light and the salt bringers, and the bringers of hope and life, Jesus' hands and feet. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world, and to stand out and to live differently. And if we want to do that and go against the flow, um, if we want to be able to stand when everyone else around us falls, we need to have a real honest look at ourselves first and see what are we carrying with us? What is taking up space in our heart that is space that could be given to God? What does he want to fill this space with? What truth does he want to put in us instead? And also, what is preventing us from really living out an authentic life of sharing our faith in the day-to-day things that we do. And so, hopefully, if I add some more water, they might run away again. 
but we'll see. So we can see, this is part of it, don't worry. When we get to the top, there's some stuff that clings and it's hard to shake and it would take a lot more intentional pouring of that water and getting it at the right angle and enough force um, to get that to go over the edge. And sometimes we get to that point where things need to change but it can be hard, um, something that we've been holding on to for a really long time. And sometimes we're aware of those things and sometimes we're not. And the only way to do it, to remove these things from our hearts and lives is with God. And it's not something that just happens. Um, we have to be really intentional and open to God to let his presence come and fill us with truth and to shape us. Because God doesn't barge in and demand every single thing and you know, dictate what we do. He, he knocks and he waits for us to respond and he'll show us things and he'll give us prompts. Um, but at the end of the day, we have a role to play. We have a responsibility to respond because sometimes we just have to be the ones that help push the last ones over the edge. Great. Oh, fun. So, to help us turn this into action, before we end, I have three, three things for us, um, hopefully to help us not only survive in exile or under pressure, but to thrive. And the first one is to know our identity. We need to know who we are in more ways than one. We need to know who we are as children of the King of heaven and earth, because when we realize what and who we have access to, the things that this world offers will peel in comparison. When we're lonely or upset, we don't need to seek comfort in food or alcohol or Netflix and relationships. We can find comfort in an everlasting father who will never leave us or forsake us, the one who knit us together, the one who knows our innermost thoughts and desires, the one who has given us his spirit, power and authority to say no in the face of temptation and to speak life and hope over ourselves and others. We have a God who loves us, um, and who wants to see us grow for our best. And we have access to him all of the time. He can give us, you know, strength when we need it, when we need peace and comfort, he can bring it. But if we forget about him and who we are and that we have the access to come to him as children, we'll always look somewhere else. But we also need to know who we are because we need to know our weak spots. Um, and when we know what our, where our issues lie, that helps us to know where to put in our lines like Daniel did. So our second one is we need to know our lines. Daniel drew the line with eating royal food, um, but that won't be the same for all of us because um, I don't really feel that that's an option that we have to eat the royal food. But when we know what we stand for and when we know our values, that's a really great starting place. But we also need to know ourselves to know what those things are that can keep us from God's presence. Um, and the things that make us feel guilty, the things that steal our peace, um, that's usually an indicator and it's not okay. Um, and we need to put plans in place to help us prevent um, coming into these times of temptation or knowing the things to help us say no and stop when we get there. And sometimes just having one boundary isn't enough. If we know 
Like, if I get there, I'll probably go over. Maybe we need to put in a few mini roadblocks on the way. And um, I'll share a story of me. Um, I'm really honest. I know that I have this incredible ability to watch endless amounts of TV. Um, I say that I get it from my family because we love films and stuff. Um, and Netflix made this even easier for me. And I moved to Winchester and it took me a long time to make friends and feel really established and at home. And I'd get so lonely. And at times, I, at the time I was working, it was very self-directed and self-led. So I didn't have an office to get to by a certain time. And I only saw people if there was a meeting planned in. Um, so I could spend a whole day at home without talking to anybody or seeing anyone. And on top of that, I was also ill with my chronic fatigue, um, which made it even harder. And it was really easy just to spend time at home and in bed. And so Netflix would go on in the background just as like, you know, a bit of noise, keep me company, wouldn't really notice it. And then I discovered what it meant to binge watch TV. Um, and I could get through like a TV show with 12 seasons of 40 minute long episodes in like two weeks and it was a bit crazy. I didn't do it in two weeks, I don't think, I'm not sure. But like I was at the point where to go to sleep when I couldn't sleep, I would just put TV on and that would help me go to sleep. Um, and I kind of had a bit of an excuse that because I was ill, and sometimes I really couldn't do anything. It was fine to just have something like TV on because it took my mind off things and it helped me go to sleep. Um, but I reached a point where I realized that I wasn't giving God all of me. I wasn't giving him enough of my time. Um, instead, I was filling my head with pointless and trashy TV shows. And instead of listening to his voice when I needed it or when I was lonely, I would turn to 90210 or Gossip Girl or Hi, I'm at your mother. And the list was endless. And you know, I really felt when I got to the end of a series, and I was like, oh no, I finished it. There was this emptiness, like what do I watch next? And actually I realized that that wasn't, that wasn't healthy, that wasn't good for my relationship with God. And so I had to put in plans to help me change that. So I would plan to meet people in the morning or to work at the library or in a coffee shop. And if it was a day where I was struggling with my health and I maybe couldn't get up and go out anywhere, I would ring my mum so that I would have someone to talk to and process things with in the morning that would help wake me up. Usually I'd be able to get up and then do something. Um, so rather than putting on the TV, I could actually talk to a human being who can actually you know, have a good, wise conversation. It wasn't all rubbish and trash. And this really helped me. Um, I also then had to be intentional with my quiet time because I knew if I tried to do it at home on my bedroom, my iPad would probably end up being on next to me. And so I had to go outside to spend time with God intentionally. And it did help. Um, and it's helped remove that, um, that temptation. And so I still like to watch films and I still like to watch TV, but I don't do it anywhere near enough. Um, I think I've got a healthier balance of it now. And the last thing that I want to say to help us live and to get through the times when it's hard or we're under pressure is that we need to know the grace of our God because we can all, all think of something that we've done wrong whether it's big or small something that didn't please God and we could probably write a never-ending list the size of this room but I have good news for us this morning is that God is loving and gracious and he loves to forgive us and he doesn't want us to hide away from him in shame because he already knows what we've done and he knew before we did it that there was a chance that we would probably do it. But he still chose to send Jesus to die on the cross so that we could be forgiven in those times so that the price for all of our mistakes would be paid. And he did that so that we could be in a close relationship with him and we can keep coming back to him no matter how many times we mess up. We don't need to spend a week running away after we've messed up so that we feel really bad, so that he's more likely to forgive us. Like we can come to him as soon as it happens. 
we simply have to come to him and say we're sorry and hopefully we're going to mean it and ask him to help us to keep going, to keep moving forward and to give us the strength that we need to keep going so that we can live in the freedom of his forgiveness. And there's so many verses in the Bible, um, but I thought I would just pick a few to share with us. In 1 John tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In Ephesians, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of his grace that has lavished on us. In Colossians, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. When we mess up, when we've compromised, when we've lost sight of who we are or who our God is or our values, it's okay because God has enough grace to go around for all of us and we can keep coming back to him as our father. And so as we come to the end um, and we're going to go into a time of ministry so if the band would like to come up um, I used a term in the, in the talk about verse 8 and I called it our pivotal moment and a pivotal moment is a big moment or a little moment of clarity that provides us with new perspectives and opportunities to change our lives and I feel like this morning God is giving all of us an opportunity to have a pivotal moment in our lives. A time to stop and reflect and to listen to him. Is there an area that we need to grow in? Is there something that maybe we need to stop or something that we need to start doing again? We know what those things are deep down somewhere. For some of us, it'll be more obvious than others, but that's okay. Because we want to be all in for Jesus and living a life that serves him and glorifies him. And he's here this morning, ready to help us, to forgive us where we've messed up and to give us hope and life to keep going forward. So, what we're gonna do, I think, is if you could all stand with me, please. And I'm going to pray for us. Um, and just be open and listening to God, if you would like to be, as I pray. And see if he starts to bring anything to mind um, for this morning that he wants to, to deal with or to, to work with. Yeah. Father, we thank you that when you made us, you knew what would happen. You know when we've messed up you know when we get things wrong but you were prepared for all of that you were willing to get stuck in with us in our mess we thank you that you sent Jesus to come and make a way for us to have full forgiveness and to have a full life with you God and we are sorry of the times when we we don't put you first when we choose other things instead of you when we compromise on our beliefs and our values, when we hide our faith from others. And God, would you show us what those things are in our lives today? What's one thing that we're holding on to that you want us to let go of? Is there an area of our lives that we haven't given to you yet? would you show us this morning?
And God, we thank you that you want to help us. And so where we need wisdom, where we need some really practical steps to help us get out of this, would you show us those, Lord? Would you give us creative solutions and practical steps to outwork walking into freedom? say thank you Jesus thank you for what you've done thank you that no mess is too big for you and this morning God would your spirit come and would you replace guilt and shame with freedom would you replace any sense of fear any sense of hopelessness that I can't do this, this will never change. Would you come, God, and would you break those chains and break those lies and bring freedom? So Lomax is going to lead us in one, in a song. And if you would like prayer, if you would like someone to stand with you or someone that you can just speak something out loud, because that really helps us when we bring things out into the light. Um, and you just want prayer about something. It might be that you have a, a physical need um, or, you know, a situation at home or at work that you would just love someone to stand with you in prayer and give it to God. Then during this song, why don't you come down to the front? And if you would like to pray, please make yourself available as well. Come forward and bridge that gap because we want to, we want to let God do his thing this morning. So as Lomax leads us, if you would like prayer, just start making your way to the front.